Why don't we uh, just uh, pray as we begin our, our next session this morning. Lord, we thank you for this new day. We know that you are the creator, the sustainer of all things. And so you tell us to rejoice and be glad in each day that you give to us. We don't presume upon life, but we thank you for the gift of life today, for health and strength such as we have, for our churches, our communities, and especially we thank you for our family today, our husbands, our wives, parents, children, our extended families. We give you praise that you've set us in families, and most especially in the family of God. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to receive what you would have to say to us Over this next hour, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The summary then of our our first session this morning was really to be reminded about the the reign of the Lord Jesus, his kingship, his authority, uh, the, the scope of the gospel embracing all of life and culture, that human beings were made as God's image bearers, uh, we're made Koram Deu before the face of God, to live before the face of God. We thought about the fact that human beings fell into sin and rebellion. We've distorted that image. The direction of our hearts has moved away from an orientation towards God and worshipping Him and towards idols. And that means that different forms of culture emerge uh, because culture is the public manifestation of the faith the religion of a people. It's religion externalized. Religion externalized. Therefore, apostate culture can develop. However, we saw at the conclusion there that if we are restored to true worship in the gospel, as our hearts and our lives are transformed by the gospel, we are restored to true culture, which means that as Christians, every aspect of our life and work is going to be impacted by the gospel. All of life, it's not just religious, all of life is Religion, inescapably. It's going to be directed by Christ and his lordship or not. Now, that sounds good theologically. Uh, at least I think it sounds very good. I think it's true. I think it's scriptural. I think it's the meaning of uh, the gospel. But how do those things begin to, how does that reality begin to work itself out in the concrete aspects of our lives? Now, we'd have to say that if it is true that this is the Christ whom we serve, the one that I described from Colossians 1, and if the gospel restores us to true worship and therefore to true culture, the condition, the state of our culture today suggests that Believers, we as Christians and Christ Church have perhaps not done the best job of living out the reality, declaring the reality and living out the reality of this gospel. Given the mess that our culture is in today, have we been the salt and light that Christ has called us to be? Now, uh, this is not... Today is meant to be a day of encouragement and being inspired and encouraged and so forth. It's not a day of condemnation, but it is important to pose those questions. How faithful have we been as a church? How faithful have we been as a people, individually and as families, to the calling that we have in Christ? Now, part of it, of course, is that very often... In a time of decline, it's because the church has become untaught. And scripture is unafraid to condemn false shepherds, false teachers, who have not taught the whole counsel of God, who have not been faithful in instructing the flock. The book of Ezekiel deals with false shepherds as, 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 as though they are dumb dogs that can't bark, uh, that are, uh, have essentially led the flock astray. And so... We do find increasingly that we are an untaught people because we've not been instructed in the implications of the gospel and really what it means to truly live it out. Now in this uh, session I want to talk um, in particular about the first, uh, Stephen there said, uh, concentric circles as it were, the, the family, the church and then the world, to talk a bit about the family, the family can't really talk about the family without talking about um, 
marriage and children and our uh, relationships. Uh, I have been married for almost 20 years, so I... I hope I have some experience in this area. To, you know, the average marriage lasts these days about seven years, the seven-year itch, they call it. Uh, so I have three children. Um, the eldest is uh, 15. Um, as I mentioned before, my parents actually now live with me because uh, it, being a missionary is not a highly paid vocation. And so um, actually supporting one's parents, I'll come on to that later, is part of a biblical responsibility. So uh, hopefully I'm uh, not speaking as somebody without some experience, but also some consistency in the area of understanding what it means to recognize Christ's lordship in our family. Now scripturally, first of all, it's important to say that the, when we speak about the family, marriage and family, uh, God's expectation with respect to the family is not the ancient model of the clan, the pagan clan. Neither was it the idea that uh, a, uh, a single patriarch, although we do use the term patriarch scripturally, would become like a pyramid, the head of an incredibly large family. Okay, now, uh, pagan cultures, non-Christian cultures, have consistently developed that way, and that was the picture of the family in antiquity. But if you look at scripture, you notice that even the great patriarch of Israel, Abraham, was quite ready to separate from his nephew Lot and for them to live in different parts of the plain. Lot was not asking Abraham when he could tie his shoelaces. So when we speak about the family, it's important that we don't have an unscriptural view, an unbiblical view of what the family is. The family is first and foremost a covenantal institution, not one of blood ties. Okay, now that's very important. The family is not qualified by biology, simply by blood ties. Now that's proved, first of all, in the nature of marriage. When you get married, you don't, or at least you shouldn't, be marrying somebody in your immediate family. Okay? Now that shows you that the foundation of the family is not blood. Now, we wind our way all the way back to the beginning, of course. We have the creation of uh, when, when God, the first covenantal institution, the first creational institution is marriage, um, and God performs the first marriage. It's a beautiful picture. God um, speaks, and Adam is made from the dust of the earth. God breathes into him the breath of life. He becomes a living being. God had a particular way of creating human beings. Now, we can get into this in Q&A, but I do not accept and I utterly reject the evolutionary pagan account of the origin of the human person, of man himself. You cannot wed the pagan ancient doctrine of evolution to the Christian understanding of the human person. God had a very specific way of making Eve, and this is very important for the doctrine of the church and for the doctrine of marriage. So God took from the side of Adam, having uh, had him uh, name the beasts of the field. There was an act of dominion there. He's the first zoologist, really. He defines and categorizes types. And God puts him into a deep sleep. And from his side is made, not from his head to turn it, and not from his feet to stand on the wife, but from his side as an equal as a complementary partner, as an equal to himself. And God brings the woman to Adam. And he says, you shall be called woman because you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You've probably heard the question at um, some marriage sermon or another, why God created Adam first and then Eve. And there are two views of that. First is that he didn't want any advice while he was making man. Second was that practice makes perfect. So, uh, you know, take your pick. But the point is God had a very particular, very specific purpose in the creation of our first parents. And he brought them together. And that was the first marriage ceremony. 
And God bless them and he says, the two, and, and the, the two shall become one flesh. Jesus, of course, cites that passage. He cites from Genesis 1 and 2. He says, when he's dealing with a question about divorce, he talks actually about the only place for human sexuality, sexual expression in the marriage covenant, in the marriage relationship. And he says it was not this way from the beginning, for a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the first marriage is performed by God. So the human family had to get off the ground. It began, and Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters, Genesis tells us. But by the time we reach the period of Levitical law, close into marriages are forbidden. Because the tendency, now of course, we now know in terms of modern science that the gene pool, the human gene pool, is deteriorating. Right? That's inescapable. They call it genetic entropy. Mistakes in our chromosomes, copying mistakes, are building up. That's why it's more and more dangerous to marry a cousin, a second cousin. Actually, there is a problem with that even here in Britain in some communities that like to keep marriages close in the family, high rates of genetic disorder. So the best way to have the healthiest child is to marry somebody who is genetically distant from you. We're all related because we're all the human race. There's only one race. Right? There are not races. That was a Darwinian notion in Darwin's book, The Descent of Man, popularized the myth that there were different races and that some, the European race, was superior and other, other races, non-white races, were inferior. That was an Enlightenment idea, not a Christian idea. It's a Darwinian notion. But Scripture says there's only one human race. We're of one blood, Paul says in Acts 17. One man, one blood. We're all descended from our first parents and then through Noah and his sons. We are in the end, we are all the human family. But we're at a distance from one another. And uh, so close intermarriages were soon um, forbidden. Now, one of the reasons why in antiquity uh, and even through in uh, non-Christian cultures today, very close marriages have been important is because a clan mentality has prevailed. Or a chieftain mentality has prevailed. And that means that the, 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 the defining character there of the family is blood relationship. Not covenant relationship. Marriage, you form a marriage with somebody who's not directly related to you uh, through a covenant. It's a covenant commitment. It's a covenant relationship. And... It's a strange thing, really, isn't it? I mean, Paul says it's a mystery that two people from, a, from different families find each other one way or another. They're unrelated, and they marry, and they form a new family. It's a remarkable thing. Paul says it's a mystery. And the two become one. And of course, they're the the, what uh, defines the marriage relationship over against a friendship, right? because you can have lots of friendships, and a family relationship, because we've all got extended families, is the fact that it's a covenantal relationship that involves sexual union. We're going to keep this PG because of all the young people, but that is the definition of a marriage. Right? That's what a marriage is. why it's different from friendship. Jesus is clear about that. And that union brings forth children and the family continues to grow and is extended. But the marriage relationship and the family relationship is first and foremost a covenantal one. Now, I love my children very much, but, but the thing which ties me to them fundamentally uh, that's distinct from what ties me to my wife, is my biological relationship with my children. Okay? I look at them and I see myself, for better or for worse, for them. You know, I see something of myself. They are biologically related to me. But <clears throat> with my wife, she's not biologically related to me directly. She is covenantally related to me. And yet my children, in not too distant future, are going to say, thanks for all your help, Dad. I'm starting a new family. 
And then it's just me and my covenant partner again. Okay? Now, we'll still be involved. We'll try not to interfere. We'll still be involved. But there's a new family has started. So it's a covenantal tie. It's not a clan. If it's a clan, what you have is a mafia-type mentality, which says, doesn't matter what uh, uh, my children do, they're still my kids. Yeah, we're all familiar with the, you know, the, the Italian idea of the mafia, for example. I don't know whether there's any Italians in here, but that's the clan mentality. Right? Blood is everything. Blood is everything. Now, actually, this is important because Scripture requires that we put God and his covenant before blood. What did Jesus say? If a man does not hate father and mother, if he's not prepared, and of course he doesn't mean they're literally exercising hatred, he's saying that if the love for God does not become before blood relationships, we can't be followers of Christ. Now, we're going to see, I'm going to show how Jesus had a, Jesus' regard for the family and what God's law says about the family was so high that he chastised the Pharisees for it, for their, for their lack of regard for the family. But Christ makes absolutely clear that our number one priority in life is God, not blood, and then our covenant relationships, not blood relationships. Because where blood relationships seek to keep us away from serving God, from honoring God, from walking with God, we have to set them aside. And in fact, parents were required in God's word to bring their incorrigibly delinquent, violent criminal sons themselves to the court. Whereas in the clan mafia mentality, you protect your blood at all costs, doesn't matter what they've done. I'm sticking by Johnny. So, the family is the, is the foundational institution. It's a pre-fall institution. It comes through the fall. It's obviously been affected by the fall, and it begins with the marriage tie, the marriage uh, relationship. Now, God blesses the family, creates man and woman, and he blesses them. So we know that God has pronounced a blessing upon family upon marriage, upon the family unit. And then he sanctifies, the next thing God sanctifies, in fact, the first thing he actually sanctifies and sets apart in history is time itself. He says this, And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He made it holy, set it apart for rest. Biblical history, you see, is not the story of celebrating space, but the revelation of how people learn to sanctify moments, events, and time. Thus, the essence of spirituality is for God's people to know the dynamic presence and quickening power of the Lord at work in their earthly, daily lives and in all our activities. So he creates man and woman, he creates the first marriage, the first family, and then he sanctifies rest, he sanctifies time. Set this apart for me. On all these days now you do your work and you serve me. Now what do these things tell us? What's interesting about that, this sanctifying of time, is that what scripture makes clear time and again, in some of the things that seem to us like repetitive detail. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus, for example, or the book of Numbers. Is that God is in the details. We say the devil is in the details, don't we? But actually... God is in the details. Your family, your marriage, your children, it matters to God. It's not just your personal relationship with God. It's not just your vocation. It matters to God. God is in all the details. All time, all the earth, all of life is his. It's sustained by his ordination. There's no sacred, secular divide. You know, there are theologies going around the church at the moment that that name the name of evangelical, and yet they basically say that the families are just a common institution. That marriage is just a common institution. That it it doesn't belong to the redemptive kingdom, it belongs to the common kingdom, because everybody gets married. That's odd, isn't it, given what Paul has to say about marriage in the book of Ephesians. The idea that my marriage would not be transformed by the grace of Christ since marriage is the cosmological key to the universe. Because it speaks about 
First and foremost, the nature of God as a relational being, the interpenetration of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it speaks about the kind of relationship that Christ wants with his church, with his people. You think about the Bible for a moment and you look at it from the big picture point of view. The, <clears throat> the Bible begins with a marriage. And then God decides to relate to a people beginning with Abraham, an actual covenant people. This is important because the family of Israel was a covenant people, not simply a blood people. Egyptians left Egypt with the children of Israel. They took in different peoples along the way. Rahab and others were not blood Hebrews. They were brought in covenantally. So what happens is then God, having begun creation with a marriage, relates to Israel in two ways. As a father, he's father to Israel because he is father, but also as husband. How can he do that? How can he be both father and husband at the same time? Because God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Son, because of God, because of the nature of the triune God, he's also married to Israel. That's the image. He's married to his people. So throughout the Bible, we discover that the image that God chooses for his relationship with Israel is of a spouse and his spouse is unfaithful. And is it Hosea who has to keep taking this unfaithful spouse back? Israel is his marriage partner and she's an unfaithful bride. And then the Savior comes to us through the Holy Family. And Jesus begins his ministry where? <laughs> At a wedding in Cana. First miracle. And how does history end? Well, actually, before we get to that, not only does it begin with a, with, with a wedding in Cana, we then see throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, that the church is the bride of Christ. The new Israel of God is the bride of Christ. This is why it's the cosmological key to the universe. And he buys that bride for himself from his side. His side is pierced. And blood flows out and he purchases a bride for himself. And history ends at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because it's all about covenant and covenant relationship. Fellowship, intimacy, union, oneness. So when you mess around with marriage and family and you play around with its definition, you distort it, you're actually distorting and destroying the thing that manifests the gospel most clearly. Because even our bodies actually manifest the gospel. Get out of the shower one morning and take a look at yourself in the mirror, if you can bear it, and ask yourself, does my body make sense on its own? Right? Not even our bodies make sense by themselves. So if you destroy marriage, you destroy the cosmological key to the universe, the key to the gospel. This is why it's something Karl Marx understood very well. He hated the family with a passion, despised the family. Took a mistress for himself. Was an abusive drunkard of a man, well, an overdrinker. An idle, indolent man. All these intellectuals rabidly attacked the family. And Karl Marx said this. He said, the key to the destruction of the holy family is the earthly family. If you can destroy the earthly family, if you can undermine it, then you can get rid of the holy family. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The studies actually show uh, Mary Abishtat's book, How the West Really Lost God. She shows that it's not simply a case that the family has declined because Christianity has declined. She shows that because the family declined, faith in God declined. It's both. 
And why would that be? Well, if God reveals himself as father and 50% of children grow up in a home at some point that has no father, how do you relate to God? If I've got two mummies, how do I know what it means to have God as father? So you see, this cosmological key to the universe is so important. It's not a clan. The family's not a clan. It's a covenant institution. It's a covenant relationship. And it requires faithfulness. And that's why when it comes down to instructions about marriage in the Bible, it always comes back to Christ and his church. And submitting one to another as unto the Lord. And husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. And gave himself for her. We'll come to that in just a moment. The point then is that God is in the details. There's no secular sacred divide. We cannot say, well, family life, that's all good. Everybody does family. And that can just go along on its own in terms of its own principles, in terms of common ideas. And be untransformed by the power of the gospel. If we are to have any impact on the world around us, the first thing that has to be transformed in our hearts, in our lives, is our immediate relationships with our own family. That doesn't mean there isn't brokenness there. That doesn't because we're still sinners. You know, I had a row with my wife last week, and uh, took us a little while to get over it. Often happens just before you're going away to uh, speak about the family. Yeah? We're all sinners. We bring our sin into those relationships. Of course we do. And that's why sanctification is a process. God is transforming us. But we can't say, we can never say, the Lordship of Christ must not be allowed to invade and totally transform those covenant relationships. First and foremost with our spouse. And then with our children. So, believe it or not, God is as interested in your relationship with your children, with your parents, with your husband or your wife, doing the laundry, raising the kids and doing the gardening, as he is in the preaching of the gospel. Because your marriage preaches the gospel. A godly marriage preaches the gospel. To those around us, as they witness it, as they encounter it. There's nothing more powerful, actually, than having non-believing people who, who have come in through broken homes be welcomed into and experience what it means to see and witness a Christian family. I'm doing some marriage preparation with um, a, a young couple in our church at the moment. And uh, when I do that, I just take very simple three things initially in three sessions. Uh, a man shall leave his father and mother. So we talk about what it means to leave. And he shall cleave to his wife. What does it mean to cleave? And the two shall become one flesh. What does it mean to be one flesh? We leave because we're not part of a patriarchal clan. My dad lives downstairs, but he's not in charge. Yeah? He lives downstairs now, but he's not in charge. Okay, it's not a pyramid. You leave. And then you cleave and you start this new relationship where we must honor our parents still, but we start the new family relationship. And then we build unity together. We become one and the family goes on. It continues. Now, it would be something of a surprise to many people to realize that our understanding in the Christian world of the family radically changed the perspective of the ancient world. When Christianity burst onto the scene in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, a father had the power of life and death over his children. He could execute them. He could disinherit his wife. He could throw his children out on the street, disinherited completely. The Roman father, the familiaris, or something close to that. The, the Roman father 
was a miniature god, practically. And uh, for the Greco, much of the Greco-Roman world, you could have a stable marriage, but there was nothing wrong with having various mistresses. The wife wasn't allowed, but the, the husband was. And even the Jewish people, whom Jesus had to rebuke on these issues, what they were really saying when they came to Jesus and asked him about, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife or not, was to do with a particular clause in one particular passage in the Old Testament, the any cause clause. Right? Was he allowed to, they were asking Jesus, well, is a man allowed to basically say, well, you burnt my breakfast this morning, I divorced thee. By the way, Islamic marriage is still like that. All a man has to do is say, I divorce you three times, you're out, gone. A Muslim can have four wives. Muhammad allowed himself more. Polygamy, Islamic polygamy is taking place across this country. Unrecorded, Sharia courts, 80 of them or more in this country operating now as a parallel legal system. There's moves in Canada by different groups to, to re-establish, uh, to re-permit polygamy. We've got countries in Europe where people are having three-way marriages. In Canada, we can, uh, uh, people can now, up to four different individuals can, can all together adopt one child before it's even born. We are re-engineering, socially trying to re-engineer uh, the family. So in antiquity, the view of the family was very different. Christianity burst onto the scene. Jesus, of course, said, uh, these, these men wanted easy divorce. That's what they wanted. And do you know, remember what the disciples said when Jesus said, it was not this way. M- Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce because of your hardness of heart. But it was not this way from the beginning. And do you remember what the disciples said? Gosh. This is a hard saying. This is difficult. Is it better not to marry then? I mean, if I can't divorce my wife because she's annoyed me because of this, 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 this and this, is it better not to marry? Well, that's what our culture is saying today. Well, if marriage is this covenantal commitment lifelong that can only be dissolved because of flagrant covenant violation, and there's not some kind of no-fault easy divorce, which is what the Pharisees wanted, Ah, oh, so I'm not going to bother getting married then. That's why I have a church full of lovely young women in their late 20s and early 30s, many of whom can't find a husband. Because you've got far too many young men who sit in their mother's basement eating cornflakes in their boxer shorts, playing Xbox, rather than taking responsibility and getting married. And that's just a fact. Because we are raising a culture of vogue, playboy men. And by the way, ladies, that is unfortunately a byproduct of radical feminism. Because the only thing radical feminism has done is freed men from all responsibility. They've been the beneficiaries. Of course, the early reaction of feminism which was important, actually. I don't like the term feminism because um, it's unhelpful. The sec- the, the, the paganism has always wanted to put the sexes at war. Some of the creation stories, some of the gods in paganism are about the two sexes being at war with each other. That's not a Christian conception. There's no war. It's complementarity and unity equal before the face of God. Equal, as Peter says... Equal heirs of salvation. But radical feminism in trying to dissolve the distinction between men and women to the point now where we have Judith Butler, the lesbian feminist thought of the mid-20th century, late 20th century, gender mainstreaming. The goal of radical feminism was actually to destroy the very idea of male and female. And any kind of distinct gender roles. And that's meant that men have had now a crisis of identity. So if women can just go to the sperm bank and being a single mum's as good as having a dad and they can be soldiers and everything else and, well, 
wear my boxer shorts. What's the, uh, what's the what, what does it mean to be a man? There's nothing, there's no identity there, there's no distinctiveness there, there's no purpose there. What does it mean to be a man? But unfortunately, because of that notion of war and that idea of dissolving things, and you create a kind of androgynous culture, you have the rise of homosexuality. Homosexuality is sameness. Not distinction. So we have the culture joining what God has separated. Male and female. Collapsing them into one. Androgyny. Homosexuality is a cosmological idea. Ultimately, it's a religious idea of sameness. There's no ultimate distinctions. It's to behave as both male and female. A radical feminism has actually ended up leaving... Um, young women today, including a lot of Christian women because of the impact of the culture on the men, are in a very difficult situation. Our assault on the family is producing nothing good. But when the gospel broke into antiquity, it revolutionized the concept of the family. Totally changed it. And it changed it in law. So when Justinian drafted the Justinian Code, the famous Justinian Code. It was deeply influenced by his wife, Theodora. And Theodora had been a slave girl, a prostitute, who, abandoned by a businessman, was taken in by a Christian family. She came to faith in Christ. And a young commander, who was not the emperor, fell in love with her, they got married, he became the emperor, and a slave girl became empress. And because of her transformation and Justinian's transformation, they wrote scriptural law into the law of the Western world, changed the position of women, of inheritance, of children. It protected the scriptural idea of the family, changed everything. There's never been a greater liberating force in all of history than the Christian family. Did you know that? Because it broke down patriarchies, clans, which were bound by ancestor worship. Because, of course, if you, if you have a pyramid structure, if you have a pagan understanding of the family, people end up worshipping their ancestors. Non-Christian cultures still do that. Ancestor worship. No, the family is a covenantal unit and protection for the family was written into the law and it gave us what we call Western Christendom today. Now, there were still issues that, that, that there still did need to be um, changes and development. There's no question that Jesus elevated the position of women. Look at the resurrection. In a time when the witness, the testimony of a woman was only worth half that of a man, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Paul greatly elevates the status of women. We are joint heirs together. And the woman of Proverbs 31, she's not just a mother um, and a wife. She's a businesswoman. She's a manager. She is a remarkable woman. She's not the pretty doll of the Jane Austen novel who just does a turn about the room and plays the piano. That was the vision of romanticism. I don't I, I like Jane Austen fine, okay? My kid, my girls love Pride and Prejudice, and yeah, all of that, Jane Austen, great, fine. But I'm saying that that image of womanhood as ornamental is not a scriptural one. It's not a biblical one. And there was a reaction to that, a right reaction to that amongst women. But it wasn't Christianity that said, well, women are emotional, pretty, ornamental things who were not rational and everything else. That was humanism. It was the rationalists, the humanists who said that men are rational and logical and women are not. And therefore, man, you know, he is in a certain sense the embodiment of rationality and he must have the following uh, 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 roles and responsibilities and this is women's place over here. That's not a scriptural vision either. Nonetheless, we've pushed it, the pendulum has swung far too far. So actually in the Puritan age, um, 
women not only inherited, they ran their husbands' businesses and all sorts. It was, the, it was rationalism and romanticism that gave us the Victorian image of a woman where she couldn't leave the house if she was pregnant. That was prudery as well. Now what we have in scripture is a complementary relationship between male and female, man and woman, the marriage relationship where there is mutual submission unto Christ and then there is a role and responsibility that the husband and the wife have in the home. Now when we model that and right relationship to the world, it's transformative. When, for, I'll give you an example, when William Carey went to India and he took the gospel there and translated scripture, one of the practices was that a wife would burn on the funeral pyre of her husband because she was his property. Seti, the practice was called. This is why culture is the public manifestation of religion. And it's still on the books of India. It's called Carey's Law. He worked for the banning of the practice. That's the effect that the gospel has. You see, when we model the gospel, we're living now in a time of broken families, of ruined families, of confused, distorted family structures. If we model the family of God, if we model the gospel through our family, it will have a powerful impact upon uh, men, women, and nations. Now, just very quickly, there's a couple of important passages. Deuteronomy 5.16, which Paul then quotes in Ephesians 6. Let's just go there for a second. Okay, well, let's read from Ephesians 5.22 onwards, this section on the family. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Notice it doesn't say men, women submit to men. It says wives submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. He's the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. Children, obey your parents as you would the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and may, you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up your children, uh, up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So there's a general promise here for the family. That for obedience to God's word, there is, in general, as a general pattern, blessing and long life. Paul reaffirms that commandment, that you may live long in the earth. This is something that we need to reflect on and think about. This is how, as we apply God's word and God's law in our families, things become transformed. Now, there are three basic powers that have been given to the family in any society, and I'll touch on these very quickly. The first power that the family has is the control of children. The control of children. To control children is to govern the course of the future. Right? Children are put into the hands of the family. Those who shape and govern the minds and lives of the young govern and shape the course of the future. That's why the modern state is desperate to have children in their institutions from daycare right through to the end of university, outside of the influence of their parents, where their minds can be shaped and molded as they want them shaped and molded. The communists, the Marxists, wanted children brought up in collective institutions, communal wives, was Marx and Engels' idea. The humanist revolution, you see, aims at the seizure of these powers, that power of the control of children. 
And the modern state, increasingly, through its educational strategies, it wants to alienate children from their parents, religiously, generationally, ethically, and so forth. Yet Proverbs 1 tells us, do not forget your father's instruction. Don't forget your mother's teaching. Bind them around your neck. It's your father, your mother. That's the family's right and responsibility. You know, in North America, I don't know what the stat is here, but about 85% of young people today who grow up in Christian families have lost their faith by the age of 23, alienated from the family. And one of the reasons for that, and here I stand on some toes and gladly do so, is because we have abandoned the task of education. Christians have abandoned it. We used to run it. We paid for it. We ran it. We paid for it. We've abandoned it, for the most part. There is a continual effort to alienate parents from their children. In, in Canada, for example, you know, a child can go and tell a teacher that they are pregnant. The teacher can send them for abortion without even having consulted with the parents. There are emotions going through the house right now that want to force parents whose children are struggling with gender dysphoria, their identity, to force parents to have them treated, so-called, with hormone blockers, with counselling of the gender fluid variety. There's no such thing as a neutral education. There's no such thing as a neutral family. The state increasingly wants to seize that power from the family. The second basic power of the family is the control of property. That's given to the family in scripture. You shall not steal. When a king tries to take Naboth's vineyard, God forbids it and he's punished for killing him and for stealing his land, his property. Property is given to the control of property, of land, of finances, is given to the family. And we are in a, again in a culture that wants to dispossess the family. Socialistic legislators and planners have sought to alter these scriptural laws that have informed the West for generations in the context especially of progressive taxation, inheritance taxes, and so on, where the family is asset stripped. Where does the money go? It goes to the state. State bureaucracy gets larger and larger because it's trying to replace the family. And increasingly it has to because it's fit footing the bill for the collapse of the family. So the state creates a problem that then, that then it promises to solve with your money. The third power that's given to the family in scripture is inheritance. The inheritance is tied to the family, Numbers 27, and the care of parents. Jesus upholds that law, by the way, in Mark 7, 10 through 13. Jesus staggeringly upholds laws against cursing parents, despising your parents, assaulting your parents. And the idea that you can abandon your parents and say, well, I gave a gift to God, so it's Corban. I don't have to, I don't have to take responsibility for my parents anymore. Because, you know, I, I've done this, this, and this for the Lord. You read what Jesus says in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 about parents and the family. Proverbs 13:22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And yet here in Britain, I don't know what the tax ceiling is right now, but inheritance taxes when I was here were about 40%. I don't know what they look like now. Most people who, when, they, when their parents die, have to sell the family property just to pay the taxes. That's called asset stripping the family of its wealth because the state claims to be the elder brother. In scripture, the older brother is to receive a double portion of the inheritance because he has responsibility for caring for his parents which is costly. The family was the greatest welfare institution in the history of the world. Remove the family and think of the cost to the state. So nurture of children, care for the elderly, of relatives, of parents, it's all given to the family. The family is the first school. It's the first government. It's the first vocation. It's where children learn everything, first and foremost, in the context of the family. And lastly, the family is a tithing institution. The family has wealth, and as it tithes that wealth, it helps to protect the, the God-given freedoms 
that we have, unfortunately, only about 5% of North American Christians actually tithe. But if we don't bring the first fruits into the house, if we don't tithe of family wealth, if we don't bring that to God, how can God's kingdom be expanded? How can it grow? The earth is the Lord's, the Bible says, and everything in it. So, you add them all up, it's about 15% of our, the first fruits of our increase belongs to the Lord. And it was used for health, welfare, and education, not just for the priest and the, and the worship of the church. And that's how, by the way, the church funded medicine and education and uh, health care and welfare for generations until the state got involved at the end of the 19th century. And the taxes that we pay were actually mainly temporary war taxes, by the way. They just stayed conveniently afterwards. It's a very modern phenomenon that you have to surrender, add them all up, 40 to 50% of your income to the state. God is not as hard a taskmaster. There was a small head tax, and then there's the tithe. And that is how this nation and the nations of the West, for generations, generations, not perfect, but for generations ran. But we can't see the kingdom grow and the families, freedoms preserved and education in the faith if we don't tithe. It's been shown again and again, you see, that the family is the determining factor in the health and welfare of children. If you look at almost every study, the Coleman report done under the presidency of JFK, Breakdown Britain, a report that was done here some years ago, that basically the key factor in that for children's health, academic success, avoidance of crime and drug addiction, and so on and so forth, is the presence of a father in the family. Stable families with father and mother. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't single parents doing their best and by the grace of God, helped by the church, doing well. But that's not God's ideal. It's not God's best. You look at every major study, it shows this time and again that the family is the determining factor. And I, I, I don't have time, but I had all kinds of stats to share with you about what's gone on in terms of mental health and emotional health in North America among young people. The collapse of it going alongside, running alongside the collapse of the family. The, the, it's staggering. In fact, even the, I believe the, the, the Prince William here and, and, uh, and Kate are heavily involved now in mental health campaigning because this is a major issue. We have a culture of people on drugs living off antidepressants because as the family collapses, God's basic institution for our own health, our own well-being, that's what it's for, friends. You see, the marriage was never a prison. It was never a punishment. And all the jokes about the ball and chain and all of that and the trouble and strife that, you know, entered our culture. Marriage is not a prison. Marriage was given as a gift for our blessing and our health and our prosperity. And we have to recover it. I'll take a few minutes of questions before we have lunch. Yes, sir. Sorry. Yeah, sure. So the question was, um, does work arise yeah, through the, the family or through uh, a particular institution, a different institution? Um, work or dominion is, was given to human beings from the very beginning, and actually it was given to Adam even before he was before marriage. So um, single people who are still part of families, you know, need to work. And actually, one, one of the critical aspects of the responsibility of the family, and I think this is very important because we live in an increasingly welfare-oriented culture, Paul the Apostle says that if, um, if a man does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. How many times have you heard a sermon on that? Now, that's not talking about men who can't work because of illness. But if a man will not work, refuses to work, especially if he's a Christian, he has denied the faith by refusing to provide and is worse than an infidel. Paul also says if a man will not work, he should not eat. So work is basic to what it means to be a human being. 
And the means of, um, because property is given to the family in Scripture, uh, that's why we know the Jubilee laws, the land laws of the Old Testament, you see that um, uh, land is given to families. And that was the tradition in the West. Private property. You know, you shall not steal presupposes the existence of private property. So property is given to the family as the means of production. Now that's why Marx and the socialists were all about public ownership of the means of production. You asset strip the family and public ownership just meant the state and its hoodlums, its dictators owning everything and keeping the people in poverty. Uh, so <clears throat> work is, is basic to what it means to be human. Um, that's what it means to express the cultural mandate, to, to rule and subdue. Uh, the family property is given into the hands of the family. And, you know, you saw back in the day here, you know, family businesses, Sprocket and Son and so on. There was a, there was a very strong sense that family and production and, and there was a sense of continuity there. We don't live in those kind of communities much anymore. And in a certain sense, there's nothing wrong with the fact that sons often don't follow fathers anymore in terms of vocation for work. But nonetheless, we have seen a fragmenting of the family that's been detrimental to our society. People living in very, very disparate lives, um, the lack of broader support, often children having very little contact with grandparents and those kinds of things. That, 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 that's not a sign of blessing in my view. Uh, the lady there, yes, with the glasses on. Um, well, could you say that uh, UK is starting to actually accelerate, or is that just a perception I think that um, the prosperity of the gospel uh, and its effect on the culture has gone through peaks and troughs. Uh, so you see times of tremendous prosperity for the gospel. The revivals of the 18th century in this country would have been one. The faith was at a low ebb. There were terrible social problems. But along came the Whitfields, the Wesleys, the William Wilberforces, and there was a time of huge um, prosperity for the gospel and its impact upon the culture. And then you have periods of decline. I would say now, because of our abandonment of the gospel, and what is new about our period of time, and, and this is perhaps the, the most, you know, it's the frightening aspect of where we're at, what's new about it, is that there has never been before been this level of, of assault on the nature of the human person and the nature of the family. It would have been unthinkable in Wilberforce's age in the 18th century to, to question human identity, mass, male and female, uh, or to try and normalize um, homosexual behavior. So that juggernaut that's been driving through our culture, yes, there is no logical stopping point because the goal of it is only to overturn, overturn, overturn. You have God's creation order, God's norm, and the purpose is only to overturn every norm that exists. So there's no logical stopping point to that. So the only thing that will bring it to an end is God's judgment, and actually what's happening is an aspect of God's judgment, and the faithfulness of God's people, because the only stable element in a decaying society, if we are obeying God's word, is the Christian church. That's the only stable element. Yeah? I've been reading about Islam, like the statistics that when the um, Muslim population reaches 10% in the culture, mm -hmm. that seems to be the tipping point at which they start to influence society around them. Mm -hmm. Have you come across any studies which show what the tipping point marker is for a Christian community? Mm -hmm. How much does it take off our influence in a community yeah. before we see a change in society? Well, I haven't read any major studies recently, but I have seen figures like uh, when the Puritans, that was an older name for evangelicals, reached only about 7%, they ran the country. You see, they were a committed minority. And the reason you see such a huge influence of the LGBT crowd, which are less than 3%, uh, is actually a motivated minority with a purpose. And even people who don't have the living God and the work of the Holy Spirit, which includes Muslims and, and um, radical um, progressivist activists, these neo-Marxists in the LGBT movement. Um, you only need a small number to have a radical influence on the culture. If there is real commitment, real faith, 
I mean, if you've got an unbelieving faith that doesn't even put trust in the living God and his power, you can see these kinds of changes in a culture. Now, what's the reason that both Islam and uh, what I would call the, um, the cultural Marxist movement that have had such speed of force in this country to overturn things is because we already were demoralized. By that I mean literally demoralized, right? A guilty people have no moral resistance to these things. If you don't believe anything, how are you going to resist Islam? I mean, if your vision of the world is, well, everything's equally true and it's all relative and all cultures are equally valuable, <laughs> all cultures are equally true. That's all worship is equally true. If you're, if you, you're a polytheist, then all you've got is the strong arm of the state to try and enforce a certain set of ideas and principles. What Muslims have been able to do through demographic growth and then through uh, targeting particular schools and particular areas of society, and the mosque is a very significant um, institution, uh, it's, a, it's a battlement. I mean, if you, if you actually want to understand the mosque, you need to read Sam Solomon's books uh, on the significance of the mosque. Uh, he's a converted Muslim jurist. Um, the, they have targeted key influential roles, in, and we've now got a mayor of London who's a, who's a Muslim. Okay? And they've got their Sharia courts and their parallel legals. Now some in the House of Lords are trying to resist that now, uh, are trying to point up the abuses of these Sharia tribunals and so forth. But you actually only need a relatively small number. If actually the Christians in this country who name the name of Christ and truly believe in Christ and his word were to become faithful in expressing the gospel in every aspect and became a consistent public voice, we would be able to roll back a huge amount of the damage that's been done in a relatively short period of time. But we don't believe it. We don't believe the gospel. That's our problem. And we don't resist. We don't speak out. Um, at the very least, what we would do is we'd be able to put a huge break on the current direction of things. And what does it take? It takes, you know, business guys like Nigel Farage, who doesn't even know Christ, uh, to stir up a sense of resistance to what was perceived to be by many British people, the liberal agenda and the lack of national sovereignty emanating from Europe. And he tells people, and, and there's a break, that shows you how a relatively small minority of people in 20 years can bring about that kind of political shift. I mean, that's just in politics. That's nothing to do with all the rest. That's just a political, a political decision there. So, actually, the, the tipping point is small. Now, predictions about the UK and France... Don't look pretty, right? With respect to, because, because Muslims, even though their vision of the family is distorted and unscriptural, they're having eight kids. And you don't have to be a mathematician and a genius to realize what happens 30 years from now if, if the most popular name in Britain continues to be every year, Muhammad. Yes, sir. Um, a couple of comments, if I may. Go ahead. You're using Got that point. What's your, what's your second question? My second question is simply this: that I said to virtually everything you said is election today, and I appreciate your commentary on society and the church and everything else. My question is: Are you going to offer us maybe this afternoon some practical, pragmatic steps for I think what is the intellectual implication of your presentation, which is surely reform or a new reformation of society? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, first thing, um, because today is about our situation, my parents were missionaries in the Islamic world for 18 years, and I've traveled much to the Islamic world, the Middle East, the Far East. I've spent a great deal of time there. Yes, God is doing a great work of uh, gospel transformation among Muslims. 
It doesn't get out in the press, of course. It's not something the BBC covers. But the things that are happening in Iran, for example, there are lots of amazing things that are happening in the Muslim world in terms of conversion. But at the same time, if you look at Syria, if you look at Iraq, if you look at many of the countries in the Middle East, Christians are being driven out of Syria, of Iraq. Uh, Christians are suffering all over the Islamic world today. And radicalism, or I should just say uh, a consistent expression of the Islamic worldview, in cultures that are under pressure, in Islam there are only two houses. There's the house of Islam and there's the house of war. So when a, a, a Muslim communities find themselves in non-Islamic cultures, that's when often you see the radical elements coming to the surface. So about 25% of Muslims living in the West support the agenda of ISIS. So that's why I use that as a, I use Islam only as an illustration because in the last 25, 30 years, it's become a prescient one in seeing the distinction of how religion impacts culture. Okay. Second of all, uh, the answer is yes, we are going to this afternoon be talking about um, the church, how we respond, and uh, finally the, our engagement with the state and with the world and what that means. But I suggest to you that I have just spoken pretty practically about the first step of reform, which is reform in the family and getting married and forming responsible relationships, having children educating our children in the faith. These are the ABCs, but we've forgotten them. And if we forget the ABCs, we can't move on to the more advanced stuff. So we can reform, we can talk about the reform of the church and our institutions and our liturgy, and that's important, and, and, and recovery of Christian doctrine. But if we don't actually get back to a Christian understanding of the family, of raising our children in the faith, of building stable family relationships, we can forget the rest, because that's the starting point. If I can pass on the faith to my own children in a stable environment, then already I'm making a dent in the health of the nation. So we'll cover more of that this afternoon.